Okay, let's pray together and ask God to meet us in the in the Word. I love Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, transforming the soul. And Lord, we ask that you would unleash the power of your word this morning and that our souls, our hearts would be transformed, would be changed. Lord, some here who maybe are feeling deeply discouraged that you would encourage them today. Those who are feeling weighed down by guilt, that they would see the cross afresh and that the weight of guilt would lift off and they'd be assured of complete forgiveness. Or those who feel weak, those who are feeling like at the end of their rope, those who are feeling like they're going through trials that are more than they can handle. You have power through the truth of your word to change our hearts and so come. I pray that no heart would remain unchanged, that we would leave here with more love for Christ, more hope in heaven, more love for the lost, more zeal for your glory than when we walked in. And so come and do that. I pray for your help as I preach, Lord. Give me wisdom. Give me the right heart. Help me, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in Luke chapter 2, um, which, was, which the Maddens read for us this morning, we learned what the meaning of Christmas is. Through an angel, an angel announcing to shepherds out in the fields, and here's what the angel said. Let me just read you the whole passage. It's Luke 2, 8 through 11. Here's the meaning of Christmas from the lips of an angel to some shepherds. Verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you, get this, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's Christmas. So Christmas is all about a great joy which can be experienced by all the people because Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior, was born. That's what Christmas is all about. Okay, now, Sunday mornings, we've been preaching through Philippians here. And as we came to December, I looked ahead and thinking, okay, Christmas series, and I noticed that Philippians chapter 3 is about joy. And so I thought, let's just do a Christmas series continuing through Philippians on Christmas joy, chapter 3. So last Sunday and this Sunday, we're in Philippians 3, focusing on the joy of Christmas. Now next Sunday, we'll take a break from Philippians, take a week to focus on the Christmas story. We'll be digging deep into that. But right now, we're going through Philippians, Christmas series, continuing through Philippians. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, we want to bring one to you so that you have a Bible you can look at in front of you. So raise your hand. Philippians chapter 3 is on page 981 in the Bibles that we're passing out. So last week, we saw from the beginning section of Philippians chapter 3 that Paul calls us and his readers, he calls all of us, to rejoice in the Lord. We all know that. That can be a cliche. One more hand is up over here. Thanks, Chuck. So Paul calls us to rejoice in the Lord in in Philippians chapter 3. 
And that's the theme of today's passage as well, this section of the beginning of Philippians chapter 3. So let me give you an illustration of what it means to rejoice in the Lord. And I got this from, uh, it's from the life of Henry Martin, who was a missionary to India in the early 1800s. And so listen to what he experienced one day as he prayed, the joy that he had in the Lord as he was seeking the Lord. Here's what he wrote down in his journal. In prayer, he says, I had a most precious view of Christ as a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Oh, how sweet was it to pray to him. I hardly knew how to contemplate with praise enough his adorable excellencies. Who can show forth all his praise? I can conceive it to be a theme long enough for eternity. I want no other happiness, no other heaven. So Jesus Christ, as, as Henry Martin was praying, Jesus Christ gave Henry Martin so much joy in beholding him, worshiping him, loving him, that he needed nothing else. I want no other happiness. I'm completely satisfied. And see, that's why in Philippians chapter 3, Paul calls us to seek our joy in the Lord and not in anything else. He calls us to seek our joy in knowing, worshiping, loving Jesus Christ and not to seek our joy in anything else. Now, I clarified last week. Let me do it again this week. That does not mean that we don't experience joy in anything else, right? Because God gives us wonderful good gifts like the sun shining on your face, the smell of lasagna, okay, a, a conversation with a good friend, God gives us wonderful gifts that he wants us to enjoy. But experiencing joy in something is very different than seeking your joy in something. Crucial difference we have to learn. Because when you seek your joy in something, you're looking to that thing to satisfy, to fill your heart hungers and thirsts. And only Jesus Christ will satisfy and fill your heart, hungers, and thirsts. Nothing else will. Jesus Christ will. So let's say, for example, you've had a very uh, frustrating day at work or maybe with your kids, okay? And you're frustrated and you're, your heart's empty. You're, you want comfort. You want peace. You want joy. Now, if you turn to the Lord Jesus in prayer and pour out your soul to him, and fight to trust his promises, and behold his love, and his goodness, and his glory, and his majesty. If you will do that, he will meet you. He will strengthen you. He will comfort you. You will meet him. Your heart will be filled. Your heart will be at peace. Your heart will be content. Okay, but if instead of turning to Christ... Maybe you think, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call up a friend and complain to him. This friend, if I'm just going to complain, my, this friend's going to satisfy my heart, bring me the peace I want, bring me the peace I need. You'll be disappointed. No fault of your friend. Okay, your friend can be the perfect listener, okay, the perfect sounding board. But you will not find the heart fullness and the peace and the contentment that you're looking for. It's only found in Jesus Christ. So we experience joy from 
talking to friends and lots of other gifts God gives to us. But Paul says we should seek our joy, seek our heart satisfaction, seek our heartfulness in Jesus Christ alone. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Now, why is that so important? Why is it of the utmost importance that you seek your joy in Jesus Christ and Him alone? Why is that so important? Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3. Now let me give you some background to the passage we're going to look at. Same background as last week. Paul's readers were being tempted to seek their joy in their status of being circumcised. That might sound kind of strange. It's not what's happening in our culture today. No one's doing that today. But that was part of the culture back then. The religious cultural milieu, they were seeking their joy in the status of of being circumcised. Now, today that's not our temptation. We might be tempted to seek our joy in the status of running a marathon or you know landing a high-tech job or what your your images before other people or something like that okay that's what we deal with today but paul's readers were tempted to seek their joy and their status in circumcision now remember in in the old testament circumcision pictured what happens when god saves someone how god cuts away from our hearts sin so we can worship god and love jesus christ so with that in mind start reading in verse three Paul says, we are the circumcision. That is, we've experienced what circumcision pictures, the reality of circumcision in our hearts. We are that, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That is, we don't seek our joy, our heart satisfaction in the flesh. That is, in anything other than Christ. Though I myself, verse 4, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Okay, so in verses 7 and 8, Paul describes a a decision, a commitment, a resolution that he came to. So what decision had Paul made? Read verses 7 and 8 again. You'll see it right there. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Okay, so what's going on here? Paul had great status in the Jewish religion. Top of the heap. Fame, power, notoriety. Every Jewish person in that area knew Paul. They knew him. They knew of him. 
But when he was saved, he counted all of that as loss. All of that that he had, he counted as loss. Not only that, Paul says he counted all things as loss for the sake of Christ. Now what does that mean? To count all things as loss. Because Paul's calling us to do the same thing here. So what does it mean? Like for example, how did he count being Jewish as loss? He didn't stop being Jewish. The Paul who wrote this was still Jewish. So how did he count being Jewish as loss? It's because he stopped seeking his joy in being Jewish. That's what he stopped doing. In the past, when he'd had a bad day, okay, whatever going on, he had some, some problem with his chariot or some problem with the leaking roof, or okay, he had a bad day or his people weren't treating him very well, he might say, well, at least I'm Jewish. Okay? They're not Jewish. I'm Jewish. Kind of build yourself up that way, right? Do any of the rest of you do that about other things? We all do that. Okay, that's what Paul did before he met the Lord. But now, when he has a bad day, he doesn't seek his comfort, his strength, his joy. And, well, I'm Jewish, and they're not. I'm, I was circumcised on the eighth day. They're not. Now he brings his heart before the Lord Jesus. So he, he counts the circumcision, being Jewish, the joy he sought in that as loss. He's turned from seeking his joy in all that religious pedigree that he had, and he is seeking his joy in Jesus Christ alone. That's how Paul lives his life now. Whenever his heart was insecure, fearful, struggling, empty, guilty, whatever, he didn't any longer pursue those things he used to to satisfy his heart. He's turned from those things. It's Jesus Christ alone. That's how Paul lives his life. That's the decision that he made. Now, why? Why did Paul make that decision? Verses 8 through 11, he tells us. And look at what he says. This is huge. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So why does Paul stop seeking his joy in anything but Christ? Why? Five reasons in those verses. Let's look at them one at a time. Now I want to go through these because I want to be in sync with Paul's train of thought here. Paul wants all of us to be persuaded like, yes, that's how I want to live my life, Paul. I see it. I feel it. No to all those things I used to trust to satisfy me. Yes to Jesus Christ alone to satisfy me. I want to count all things as lost for Christ's sake as well. He gives us these reasons to persuade us. Some of you are not yet persuaded. That's all right. We haven't looked at the reasons yet. Okay, We're going to look closely at these reasons, and we're asking the Holy Spirit to come now and to work in each of our hearts. And even if you are persuaded, look, you need to be persuaded more. It's easy to be persuaded about these things in church sometimes. Okay, Get out there Monday morning, not as easy. 
So let's take a look at these reasons and say, God, come through Paul's words by the Holy Spirit and persuade me that this is how I want to live. First reason, verse 8, it's because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. This is, this is just huge. Please get this. Jesus Christ is not just a doctrine to be believed. He is that, but he's not just that. He's also not just an authority to be obeyed. He is that also, but he's not just a doctrine to be believed or an authority to be obeyed. Jesus Christ is a person to be known. You can know him. The living Jesus Christ. You can know him. And the worth of knowing Jesus Christ surpasses every other worth that there is. All those other things you used to trust to satisfy you, their worth is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Do you know him? Oh, Some of you, maybe all it's been is just believing certain things and doing certain things. Do you know him? You know him. Paul says he counts all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. When we trust him, worship him, pour our souls out before him, exalt him, rely on him, he will give us times where he fills us with his glory and his majesty. He will do that. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's one reason. Okay? Persuaded yet? Okay, hope the persuasion's coming. Got four to go. All right, second reason. At the end of verse 8, it is so that he might gain Christ. He wants to gain Christ. The one thing Paul wants is, I want to gain Christ. Now, what does that mean? Remember Philippians chapter 1, verse 21? Chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Dying, Paul understood, would be gaining more of Christ. And so what he's talking about here in terms of gaining Christ is that he knows that as much as he has known of Christ here, as much as he has known the living Jesus here, as, as it's worth more than anything else, but still it's just through a mirror dimly, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not yet face to face. And Paul knows that just like Joe's grandmother is now face-to-face with Jesus Christ, when he dies, he will gain that face-to-face, and there will be even greater joy in beholding him, loving him, worshiping him with all the saints. So that's what he means. Second reason, he wants to count everything else as loss so he can gain Christ in heaven forever. Second reason. Persuaded? Okay. Third reason. It is so he will be found in Christ. Read verse 9 again. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's the scenario. At the end of history... You, me, we will all stand before God and be judged by God. Okay? You'll be there. You'll be standing before him. And if at that moment the only righteousness I can present is a righteousness I've tried to produce by myself, by my own power, 
I will face God's judgment because none of us can produce righteousness by ourselves, by our own power. If the only righteousness you can say, well, is righteousness, you tried, you tried to be good, you tried to be righteous, if that's all you've got, you'll, you'll face hell forever. But the good news is, here's the good news, by trusting Jesus Christ, you are clothed in his perfect righteousness. So when you stand before God's judgment on that final day, you're not presenting, you know, I tried to be good. I tried. Jesus, look at Jesus' perfect righteousness. I'm covered with it. I'm clothed with it. And the Father looks at you and he says, he smiles. Welcome. You are righteous. You're perfectly morally righteous, clothed with my son's perfect moral righteousness, which is covering your sin. But you trusted him. You were joined to him by faith. Welcome. Do you want to be found in Christ? In his perfect righteousness on that day? John Piper, I heard, used an illustration. He says, God's wrath is like this intense fire that will consume, punish, burn, sin. And Jesus Christ is like a huge, like an asbestos suit. Okay, and if you are in the asbestos suit of Jesus Christ, then God's wrath won't touch you, won't harm you. You'll be forgiven, welcomed into heaven. So, One reason Paul wanted to turn from everything else he was trusting to satisfy him and trust Jesus Christ alone to satisfy him is because he wanted to be in that asbestos suit of Christ when he faces God's judgment. Do you want to be in the asbestos suit? I do. Okay? There's there's a third reason. Fourth reason. Two to go. It is so he will know Christ and his power, and his sufferings. That's verse 10. He says that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I hear Paul's explaining more of what it means to know Christ in this life. This is so powerful to understand. As we trust and obey and worship and follow Christ, he will give us times in this life where we experience the power of his resurrection. You'll experience the power of his resurrection changing your heart, just transforming your heart from discouragement, from temptation, from pride, changing your heart so you're humble, you're trusting, you're loving. You'll experience that. You'll have times where you experience his power enabling you to love someone who you, before you could not love. And he's giving you the power to, I'm loving this, I love this person. Where did that come from? The power of his resurrection. You'll experience his resurrection power giving you power over temptation that comes your way. Big old temptation, ah, right there. Resurrection power, slain with the sword of the spirit. How'd that happen? Resurrection power. You'll experience his resurrection power working miracles, healing people. You'll experience resurrection power, and when you see the the resurrection power of Jesus Christ supernaturally breaking into your life, working in you, working through you, it'll fill you with joy. Power of his resurrection. Now, some of us would wish Paul had stopped there because of the next one, okay? But it's very important we understand there's two sides of the Christian life. There's also sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
There will be times when you're persecuted for the gospel. There will be times where you are heartbroken over wayward people or over the lost, weeping over people. There will be times where you suffer trials. Scott mentioned his back. He's had a very painful back for almost three weeks now. Okay? Others of you suffering trials, heartbreaking trials, health trials, relational trials, emotional trials, suffering trials. But see, when we know Jesus Christ and when we suffer persecution or disappointments or trials, we are there, we're sharing in his sufferings. And you will have sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ in your tears. You'll have sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ in the pain. You'll have sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ in the suffering and his presence, the sweet fellowship of Jesus Christ, makes the suffering more than worth it. So there's the power of his resurrection and then there's the fellowship of his, of his sufferings. And we will have that as we count everything else as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord fifth reason. It is so he will be raised from the dead. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, two weeks from today, Lord willing, we're going to talk more about what Paul means when he says, by any means possible. But for now, let's just focus on the fact that one of the reasons Paul counts everything else as loss and seeks his joy in Christ alone, is so he will be raised from the dead, which means being welcomed into heaven, where he will see with all the saints the glory of Christ and worship him, be captured with his beauty and his majesty forever and ever. That's the fifth reason. So he will be raised from the dead. Now, there's a lot we could talk about from this passage, but as I got to this point in my study, there, there was one question or one, one insight I think that God gave me that was so helpful that I want to leave it with you and I hope it'll be helpful with you also. And let, let's ask this question. What does this passage teach us about saving faith? What, what is saving faith as we see it described in this passage? The reason I ask that is because in verse 9... Paul says we are found in Christ and clothed with his perfect righteousness through faith. There's saving faith right there. It's underlined faith in verse 9. It's used twice. Okay, underlined faith there. But then in verse 8, Paul says that to be found in Christ, we must count everything as loss. Verse 9 says it's ours by faith. Verse 8 says we must count everything as loss. Now let's read verses 8 and 9. I want you to see this for yourself. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through Faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
So to be found in Christ and clothed with Christ's righteousness, we must have faith in Christ and we must count everything else as loss for Christ's sake. Do you see how there's two things there? Verse 8, count everything else as loss. Verse 9, it's through faith. But I don't think those are two things. I think those are two ways of describing one thing. What saving faith is. See, saving faith means turning from whatever else you used to trust and trusting Jesus Christ alone. Saving faith means turning from whatever you used to trust to satisfy you. Okay? Money, reputation, sexual pleasure, blah, blah, blah. Turning from that. That's what repentance is. Right? You repent and you believe. You were pursuing this way. Repent means you turn. So you just said, count all that as loss for the sake of following Jesus Christ. You're my joy. You're my satisfaction. You're my treasure. Here we go. So saving faith includes, it involves turning from whatever you used to trust to satisfy you and turning to Jesus Christ to satisfy you. Because see, whatever you used to trust to satisfy you, that was your savior. That, that is your idol, I-D-O-L. That is your God. Because whatever you trust to satisfy you is your God. And so faith means turning from whatever you used to trust to trusting Jesus Christ. Now, let me get a little more specific. What this means is that if you're trusting Jesus Christ to forgive you for your sins, but you're trusting money for your security and your joy, then you're not really trusting Jesus. Because it's not saving faith. Okay? You've got to repent. doesn't mean you become perfect. It's a battle. It's fight. It's war. But that's, that's what turning is. So see, saving faith does mean trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It does mean trusting Jesus Christ for the gift of righteousness, that asbestos suit. Glory! What beautifully good news. But if you're trusting Jesus Christ, then you need to trust Jesus Christ. And one of the things that Jesus says is, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So part of trusting Christ means trusting him as your bread who will satisfy your heart hungers. So saving faith includes everything that Paul describes in verse 8. Counting those things as loss. Turning from those things. I'm not going to seek my joy in those things anymore. I'm seeking my joy in Jesus Christ and him alone. Saving faith. This is so crucial for us to to understand. Now, why would we turn from everything else that we used to trust to satisfy us and trust Jesus Christ alone to satisfy us? I mean, why would we do that? I mean, think about all these things. Okay, why would we turn from these and trust Christ alone? It's because only Jesus Christ will satisfy you. None of those things will satisfy you. Only Jesus Christ will. So uh, this morning, identify in your heart, what's your biggest competitor with Jesus in terms of your trust? Where do you turn when somebody disappoints you? Or when your kids are out of control? Or when you're tired or empty or frustrated or disappointment. I mean, really, let's just get down to real tangibilities here. What do you do? Where do you turn? Do you come and pour your soul out before the Lord and fight to trust his promises? 
and seek to behold his glory and his love and his goodness. Is that what you do? Or do you, you know, drink some more or watch some more or click some more or complain some more or self-pity some more? I mean, I've, I've got a whole list of, okay, right? What do you do? I mean, really, what do you do? Living by faith in Jesus means saying, you're the bread of life. You are my all-satisfying treasure. Help me. Help me. Help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. We come. Our hearts are a mess. We look to Jesus, and he comes to us, and he helps us, and he meets us. So what is your biggest competitor with Jesus in your heart? Okay? Think about what that is. And understand, I mean, just like hold that competitor up and then compare it to Jesus Christ. Hold that competitor up and compare. There's just, there's no comparison. There's just no comparison. And so ask him, Lord Jesus, help me to turn from that. You come to him as you are. He will forgive you. He, with his resurrection power, will change your heart. He, with his presence of the Holy Spirit, will start to satisfy you and strengthen you and build you. He will do that. And that's the life of faith. And that's what Paul's teaching in this passage. Now, what questions does this raise in your mind? I like to open up for questions just so we can dig this a little deeper and make sure I'm being really clear here. Am I in track with with the passage here? We've all got the Bible in front of us. The Bible's the important words, not mine. Am I in sync with the passage? Is that what Paul's saying? What are the implications? How do you live this? Let's work on this together. What are some questions? Going, going. Okay, so go Ann first and then Dave. Go ahead, Ann. I don't necessarily have a question. I just want to say, I think that that's such an applicable question to ask yourself. Just what competes with your love for the Lord and all of that. I just, you know, I think if we kept that question, you know, like on the mirror in front of us, Yes. And let me just clarify too, as you're talking. So, does this mean that um, that if you have competition, if Jesus has competition, that then you you're not trusting Christ and you're not saved? No, it's not what that means. What this means is that if is if you are battling those things, and if you're turning to Jesus and saying, "Help me, help me," my heart's pulled towards money, my heart's pulled towards power, my heart's pulled more towards career than towards you. Jesus, help me. See, the moment you turn to him and say, help, that's faith. That's faith, right? I believe, help my unbelief. I pray that a couple times every day, usually. Okay, that's help. And the moment you say, help me, that's faith. He will help you. So, faith does not mean that you have conquered all of those things. It means this is your desire, to live this way. And then you start fighting by faith. And it's a fight between now and heaven. But if you're fighting, that's how you can tell you're trusting. It's if you've just settled for those things. Well, I, just, I, just, I love these things more than Jesus, but I'm trusting him to forgive me, so it's good, right? No, you've got to be battling. 
Okay? Maybe somebody want to help me clarify that more, but Dave's got a question first. It's really not a question, it's more of a statement. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised in a Christian home, but I turned my back on Christ not thinking that he was the answer. Okay. And I sought all the things you just talked about in the world, drugs, sex, other religions, chanting with the Buddhists, you name it, I tried it. Yeah. And nothing worked. Okay. But it wasn't until my father's praying for years mm. made me have the willingness come back and repent to Christ and say, yes, I need you. And it took Beautiful. years, but it did work. And it, yes. And I found out that the drugs and the alcohol set a psychosis in. It's harder for your own mind to break through. You can't do it. Mm. You have to have a higher power help you. Yes. Break through that and become willing. Yes. And Jesus Christ is that higher power. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Somebody else? Mike. It's just an observation about this idea of knowing. Uh, yes. That's a complicated thing in our society these days because the, one of the prevailing thoughts out there is that you really can't know anything. Mm. That, that to claim that you know something is actually foolish. Mm. Right, right. Uh, it can be so subtle, and and it's one of those things that we also have to battle, right? Like yeah. Just even the thought, like, do I even know what I'm talking about? Do I, do I, can I even claim knowledge in anything whatsoever? So when it gets hard, and it, you just can't figure out why it's hard, mm. that's some of the stuff that's going on. So mm. knowing that's being talked about is is the same kind of knowing it's like a predictability a friend that you have trusted over years Ooh, mm. right that you you can predict their behavior yes and you can predict the things that want that that can come from and that is mm. that's a deep knowing right? yes yes argue against that Ooh, yes god's going to i i believe the character of god does this and this and i've seen it happen and that's what I know. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Thank you, Mike. So again, let me just clarify. So here you are, and you're aware of a competitor with Christ in your heart. And you're troubled about this idea that that's part of saving faith, is is turning from that. Okay, so, because that's, it's pulling your heart. And, 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 and you're not feeling so much of a pull towards Jesus. Okay, so, so what do you do? You just say, Jesus, help me. My heart's being pulled towards that. And see, the moment you turn and look to Jesus and say, help me, that is faith. You've, you've turned. You're saying, I want to be changed. My heart's not changed yet, but I want to be changed. That's faith. That only happens with people who've been born again. No unborn again person says that. I want to be changed. I want you to forgive me. I want you to help me. See, that's, that's faith right there. So, so faith is not how much you've conquered these things. Faith is that you're turning and crying out to Jesus to help you conquer these things, to enable you to conquer these things. And see, anybody can turn and say, Help me. Help. Okay, that's faith. Help. Can anybody not say help? That's faith. So 
I want to stress that it's, it, it's, there's got to be a turning, there's got to be a repenting and a believing, but the repenting doesn't mean having fully conquered all those things. The repenting just means you're turning and saying, help. And the reason that that's so beautiful is as a faithful friend, Jesus will always help you. He will always help you. There'll be some battle, there'll be prayer, battle to trust his promises, battle to seek his face, but he'll always help you. Always. Just this last week, I was overwhelmed thinking about the decisions we have to make in terms of packing and furniture and house and moving and blah, 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 blah. And uh, so what do you do? What do I do? Do I like, what? what's on TV? You know, do I go, there's some chocolate chip cookies in the cupboard, you know? I mean, what do you do? Because my heart was just, and, and, and it just all of a sudden dawned on me, and I just need to sit down and say, Jesus, help. And so it was a battle, and, but then the Lord, I tell you, over the next couple hours, he changed my heart. And so I knew that he would help us make all the decisions that need to be made and not be left like we're moving and our stuff is still there. And, no, but, and Anyway, I had all these visions of terrible chaos breaking out. So again, where do you turn? And you just turn and say, Jesus, help me. So let's pray together. Think about what's competing in your heart with Jesus Christ. We've all got them, more than just one of them. So, So think about this. Let's get real tangible. If you don't think of one, then you're not really getting this. If you think, well, I've, I've, I've overcome that. No, you're not. Maybe it's self-righteousness then. You know, who knows what it might be? There's always, we're always battling something. This side of heaven, there will always be something we're battling. So get in touch with what yours is. What do you turn to to have your heart be comforted, filled, satisfied besides Jesus Christ? That's the essence of sin. And that's what all sin is, is seeking our heart satisfaction in something other than Christ. So see that and feel that and then turn. And would you right now, just in the quietness of your heart, say, Jesus, help me. Help me. My heart still wants that other thing, but I know I know that you are God. I know that you are the Son of God. I know that you've died on the cross. I know that you've risen from the dead. I know that your presence can satisfy me, but I'm just not feeling it now. Help me. Pray that right now. Just go ahead. Take a few moments and pray that right now. Ask him to forgive you for how your heart is wanting something else more than him. Ask him to forgive you right now. And ask him to change your heart. Ask him to transform your heart. He will do that with his resurrection power, his supernatural power. Ask him to change your heart. And then what I would encourage you to do, you can do it some right now, but maybe later on today, is take some time where you open up God's Word and you 
feast on God's promises to you in Christ. You you behold his glory in Christ. You you look at who Jesus is and pray over those passages until you experience the Holy Spirit changing your heart. So once again, you are seeing and feeling Christ as your all-satisfying treasure. He will do that for you. He will pour his spirit out upon you through the word as you pray. And you will love Jesus more than anything. And sin's temptations will lose their power. So Lord, I pray that you would do a powerful work in our hearts. Here we are, Mercy Hill Church. We need your power to come. We cannot produce this by our own efforts. That's why we're looking to you with faith. Help us, change us, reveal your glory to us, satisfy us in yourself. And then, Lord, as we experience your joy and your peace, fill us with love for people in our neighborhoods who don't know you, workplaces who don't know you, those in our home groups who do know you, that the rest of this Christmas season we can seek our joy in you and pour out in your love for others. So do this, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.